I am Dracula. Welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Ghost Collective and your podcast host. This is the beginning of a third series. We've explored the figure of the witch and the monstrous feminine, and we're going to be spending the next few months talking about the most elegant of movie monsters, the vampire. In each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest to dive deep into a vampire movie, or two, or in the case of this episode, three. Because to kick off the season, I'm joined by vampire expert, author, scholar, and founding member of the Manchester Center for Gothic Studies, Dr. Sirka Neeline, to talk about probably the most iconic vampire in fiction and in horror cinema. I'm talking, of course, about Count Dracula. We're going to be diving into three very different screen adaptations of Bram Stoker's Dracula. The original Screen Count, played by Bela Lugosi in the 1931 film. The iconic Hammer Horror film from 1958, where Sir Christopher Lee took on the bloody mantle and Peter Cushion played his nemesis, the vampire hunter Van Helsing. And a lesser known, but absolutely wild, 1979 film starting Franklin Jello's Dracula with Laurence Olivier as an aging Van Helsing, which presents the undead Count as a neurotic, seductive figure. If you're new to the podcast and it was the gifts of Franklin Jellis Buffon that drew you in, please know that we do discuss the films in detail from pretty much the very beginning. All the films we'll be talking about have very different takes on the Dracula story, so if you're not familiar with the source material or you haven't seen some of these films, the spoilers are light, but do feel free to jump ahead to the ones that you've seen if you don't want any details revealed to you at all. This season is made possible with the support of Arrow Video, who bring you the very best in cult, horror and genre films, specializing in deluxe definitive home entertainment editions. Their collection now spans more than 500 physical releases, including films from Dario Argento, John Carpenter, Chanwick Park and many more. Throughout the season, we'll be recommending a film that we love from their vast collection. And this week, I'd highly recommend you check out Abel Ferrara's The King of New York, which stars Christopher Walken as drug lord Frank White, fresh out of jail and back on the streets of New York City. It'll be out on DVD, Blu-ray and 4K UHD on November 16th. And for more information, you can head over to arrowfilms.com. If you enjoy this podcast or you're new to what we do, you can find out more about The Final Girls and all of our projects over on thefinalgirls.co.uk. And with that, enjoy our triple bill of Dracula chat. Sirka, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time to join me. Uh, thank you for having me, Anna. It's a pleasure. And as we were talking before we started recording, it kind of materialized in a wonderful way where I was meant, I was thinking about emailing you and you were thinking about emailing me about something else. And we here we are, remotely yeah. recording. This is it. And when you mentioned vampires, I could not <laughs> resist. And who better to kick off this new series of the podcast than with you? So we have got a lot of films to get through in this episode, but I want to start off just asking you about what is your own relationship with the vampire? And I'm, I'm talking obviously in fiction, but you know, 
don't well, know. I'd never give away <laughs> trade secrets, would I? Um, my relationship with vampirism is long and winding, but to kind of boil it down to its pertinent moments, I suppose, um, I fell in love with vampire fiction when I was a teenager, quite a young teenager, and it was just before Into the Vampire had come out in the mid-1990s, and what got me really excited was, of course, the vampire's story or the vampire's point of view. So I read Into the Vampire, I instantly ran out and bought tons more of the fiction, read Dracula, read lots and lots of different types of vampire fiction, discovered there was a whole world of fiction that did appeal to me quite quite strongly. And of course then, you know, very much familiarised myself with the cinema of it. And I've been coming back to it ever since. Uh, and that's a few decades ago now. Um, I, you know, I, I went to do different studies. I, I, I undertook different degrees and then I kept on having the pull of the vampire fiction and film coming back to me. So I ended up writing my doctorate on vampire fiction and film. And uh, and now I teach uh, history of vampires amongst many other things at the Manchester Centre for Gothic Studies at MMU. So for me, it's been a lifelong love affair with the undead that has materialised in these really wonderful opportunities. I love it. And also, I genuinely would have totally gone to study the history of vampirism if that had been available to me when I was studying. <laughs> you're always welcome. We all we have it at all levels. So you're always welcome. Anyone who wants the history of vampires, you can always come along. Oh, my God. Don't tempt me because I will. <laughs> I will. <laughs> so uh, and can you talk a little bit about um, what is it about vampirism and vampirism fiction that appeal to you? Well, you see, they're the most elegant of all monsters, I think, or creatures or others, whichever way you look at them, they are the most elegant. I mean, you know, the ghost is spectral. The ghost is oftentimes, you know, something to be feared or misunderstood or stuck in a loop of its own kind. The zombie is rotting flesh, abjection, unpleasant in some respects, however sympathetic they might be portrayed. But vampires are quite unique. They're kind of like time travelers is the way I've always kind of thought of them, that they are st they are a product of their own time, but they are timeless as well. So they can, they're contradictory, you know, they're up to date with a vengeance as Jonathan Harker describes Dracula in the novel. But at the same time, they represent a past that is dislocated. So I, I've always been fascinated by that they can occupy two times or two worlds simultaneously. Um, and that, and they bring with them all the history of their experience and their age. So um, I, I find them really fascinating because they do all that. And on top of that, they're usually especially in the last maybe 60 years of popular culture at least they're very attractive they're very mm. seductive a little bit of blood drinking aside perhaps you know they tend to have a very persuasive worldview um certainly the ones who are romantic and tragic as opposed to despotic mm -hmm. but um i i really appreciate that about them they just have a different way of living and as i say a bit like time travelers they're dislocated so there's always some interesting um collision course that they're on when we uh, when we look at their narratives so I, I just find them endlessly appealing and exciting you mentioned dracula in there and kind of moving on to specifically into probably the most famous vampire in all of fiction count dracula so so who is dracula for anyone who might not be familiar with the with the novel and the story of the count despite him being everywhere or maybe because he is everywhere I think sometimes because he is everywhere and has been adapted so many times on, on stage, screen, in every possible capacity in media, that people forget the original version of him or he gets lost in translation at that point. So the interesting thing about Dracula is that he is a count. He is um, in Transylvania. 
found he uh, is planning to move to uh, to England uh, to basically take ownership of, of properties that he has secured. Uh, so he's moving from the east, from Transylvania. Um, and at that time when Stoker wrote the novel, um, you know, that was a, a very distant, far off, unruly, strange place. It's not the place that we know today is from modern, modern Romania. So as a result, we find that he is someone who is completely outside any sort of sphere of influence in Western Europe. And he's coming to England in order to essentially exert his influence further. And what's interesting about that is that he's rather unknowable and that's what makes him so exciting. So in the novel, we have all these various points of view in the novel from uh, diary entries, from mm -hmm. stories, from different characters talking about when they encounter him and how strange and fascinating he is. But what's really interesting about it is that two things. Number one, everyone who talks about him talks about him in a slightly different way that you know he's either uh, weird and strange as Jonathan Harker observes or that there's something maybe seductive and terrifying about him as Mina says or indeed that he's going to promise eternal life as Renfield keeps saying but what's really interesting is we never get Dracula's perspective at all there's no humanizing element to Dracula so as a result he's unknowable his voice is not in the novel even though the novel bears his name and as a result, I think we've spent the entire 20th century filling in that gap. Who do we think Dracula is? What does he mean to us? How do we conceptualize him in a modern sense? So this is why I think we have so many Dracula film adaptations and, and novel extensions and reimaginings of him. But he becomes this sort of central character that we think we know, but he's always adapting and changing with the times. I think that's a beautiful point to move into the first authorized screen adaptation mm. of Dracula which is Todd Browning's 1931 film. I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you today? Tell he, me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms and he made me drink. Let's dive into the first screen Dracula. And I mentioned the fact that this is the first authorized version or the first authorized adaptation because there was more known as Nosferatu in 1922, but that was a sort of bootleg version of Dracula. So this is the first 
big screen count. So where does Dracula from 1931 come into the history of horror films? So it comes in at a very interesting time. Dracula, as you say, there was an unofficial and unauthorized version by Myrna on 22, which resulted in lawsuits. And, mm -hmm. and we very nearly lost it entirely. Um, to, uh, to 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 uh, uh, basically a writ of destruction uh, of the reels. So what happens is is Dracula then because it was adapted as a stage play as well. Mm -hmm. Stoker had overseen this. Um, it takes on this life in the nineteen twenties on on Broadway. So we have two versions. We have the Balderston version and the Dean version, and those are kind of hybridized in the nineteen twenties. They are hybridized in such a way that by the time we get to the 1930s Universal film, 1931 film, what we have is this really interesting um, development or snowballing from the, the theatrical decisions and the theatrical staging and costuming of Dracula that uh, and casting, of course, of, Lug of Lugosi and how this comes into effect when we make this, when we see it in the 1931 film. So all of these decisions that have kind of snowballed throughout the 1920s ends up informing the visual sumptuous nature of the 1931 film by Browning. It also introduces us to Bella Lugosi, who yes. is very, very dashing, very, um, very seductive, mm. has brings about these iconic characteristics in that portrayal, um, thinking about Dracula as heavily accented, thinking about him as someone who has this really deep penetrative stare, mm. the stare that you know seems to arrest time and hypnotize all who gaze upon him. The fact that he is an elegant man in very inelegant surroundings. And when you think of how he's captured on the staircase in Carfax Abbey. So there's so many um, uh, dislocations and incongruities that, that, that come to the fore in this film that really emphasize just how exciting a character Dracula is and also how um, iconic he would become because of course this look and this image and this sound and this and this accent and Lugosi's own dynamic flair and playing the role that becomes the the template that becomes the the kind of benchmark of what Dracula's will look like for a very long period of time thereafter. Absolutely and I'd love to dig into this a little bit because it's interesting that you mentioned Nosferatu a little bit, but this template of the elegant vampire, the elegant monster, really starts mm. with Bela Lugosi's performance, which I think kind of straddles both the silent film world and the beginning of the talkies, because he's very much acting with his face, with his eyes, with his movements, even his stillness has such gravitas to it. Even now, I've watched this film a million times and rewatched it last night. I was still struck by how dominating he is on screen, even when he's doing the tiniest of movements. And when he finally speaks, it's almost, even if it's just a whisper, it almost feels like a scream. And I'd love to talk about his his approach to this Dracula, which is a role that he played on stage, didn't he, before? Yes, he was on Broadway before. And I agree with you about that idea that we're waiting for him to speak and the silence before he speaks makes it all the more threatening and at the same time makes it all the more exciting when he does eventually deliver, whether it is a sigh or a, a cutting sort of, comment it is something that we we are waiting for and i think that's also about the production as well about the introduction of sound and the um the difference that the performance would ask of lugosi it's different from it's a different way to physically explore 
the count on the Broadway stage than it is on screen. Mm -hmm. It, of course, transitions the technology, but at the same time, it also makes Lugosi a very different kind of star after he's in Dracula. It, it associates him much more with the, the gothic archetypes that we, we grow to know as the universal monsters of the 1930s. He's very much central to that, himself mm -hmm. and Karloff. So it's, it's quite... Um, Quite a powerful moment, I think, in production as much as it is about thinking about how to capture something so gothic and iconic mm -hmm. um, in this new mode of, of, of horror filmmaking in the 1930s. It's really exciting. And there is an interesting parallel between Lugosi as an actor and his position in, in Hollywood at that time and with Dracula. And I'm thinking specifically of the heavy accent and the fact that well, Lugosi himself is an immigrant in the States and he's portraying this dashing, exotic, appealing, but still, you know, foreign seductor, basically. And I think that very much became a part of his own public persona in Hollywood. Yeah, from what I understand, he had many... Um Oh, a sort of a decadent afterlife, I suppose, if you kind of put it. it. There was a kind of a decadence associated with his personal life, I think, afterwards as well. So um, I, I, from what I, re what I recall um, of reading around him, he had uh, multiple marriages, had, had, had many, many great love affairs, it was said. So I think there's, uh, there's something about, you know, the persona and the actor mm. coming brushing up against one another. I also think as well, because his accent yeah. does announce his foreignness, I think mm. rather than seeing Lugosi as someone who's putting on an accent to heavily connote Dracula's difference, he doesn't need to do that. Mm. It's it's very much part of the um, owning the fact that of, the, of his foreignness. He's not about to ingratiate himself uh, or disguise himself in English culture. He knows about English culture. But that does not mean at any point that he wishes to go native in the culture. So I think that that makes it very interesting. His his difference marks him out as exotic and exciting and, and, and attractive, as opposed to something that is to be uh, refined out of him. He's in no way going to give into that. I mean, as, as, as nearly all Dracula adaptations that try to be faithful to the novel one way or the other say, you know, they always have that speech where they say we have the right to be proud of who we are. Mm. Um, and this is something that um, Lugosi's performance states, I think, quite clearly. Absolutely. And I think kind of even uh, subtle might not be the word, but I think it states it very clearly in in his choice of accent or his voice, because, uh, you know, in, in the two films that we're going to discuss after after mm. this one, the other two key adaptations of Dracula they they all adopt a a fairly English or even Americanized accent yes that's true I think I think Lugosi's performance is I think there are others who have tried to bring in an accent uh in order to kind of give it a legitimacy I think Coppola's Dracula um yeah. in in that Gary Oldman is certainly trying to channel a Lugosian style accent but he, he doesn't do it as um as pronounced but I think that you know when you're looking at the two other immediate ones that come after this whether it's Terence Fisher's film or indeed uh, John Badham's those two versions of Dracula are very much in response to the media expectation around that character and that all again stems back to Lugosi's own iconic branding of what we think 
Dracula should sound and look like. Because up until that point, you have a silent film like Nosferatu, where Orlok looks so different and acts so profoundly frightening, but of course in a silent manner. And then until that, you only have stage productions and of course the novel itself. So to give voice to Dracula, to personify him and, and give him that space on screen to to own the title, I am Dracula. Mm. I think that is something that can only be pulled off with a certain level of gravitas and therefore becomes the benchmark for anyone thereafter who is going to at least try and lay claim to the title. I love that. And also it's the first, it's such a statement and it's the first sentence we hear mm. him utter in the film. Yeah. And what do you think then has been the influence of Bela Lugosi's Dracula since this film? I think so much of it comes down to, well, there's the seductor and the um, the stare. I think the stare is very much mm. a Lugosi trademark. I don't think anyone else pulled it off to the same degree um, at all. Um, but I think if we're thinking about it in the grander scheme of popular culture, Lugosi's look, the style, the tuxedo, the widow's peak, the voice, all of this becomes a sort of package deal where you can literally we've just had Halloween, you could dress a child up in that outfit and they'd know it's not only Dracula, but it's Lugosi's Dracula. Mm. Or, and that would be to an, uh, you know, someone who wouldn't necessarily know that there are 300 plus Dracula films in the world. This is the iconic one in terms of style and dress and substance in that sense. But I think as well is that we think of the parodies of the vampires as well. We think of the lovely Cam Von Count from Sesame Street. <laughs> He is, he is Lugosi yeah, yeah. in Muppet form, which is just the most adorable thing. And it just shows you that it transcends terror into something that's actually very knowable, quite safe, lovable, mm -hmm. certainly. Um, but it, it, it's, a, it's such an iconic branding of the character. And such at such an important time, not only for in culture in the States, you know, um, post the crash of 29, where these vamp these these monsters are relief and are played to uh, as as iconic kind of images that are around a very particular stressful time in the American imaginary, but equally we also have these really important uh, moments of catharsis where the monster is something okay terrifying, but also very beautiful and very unknowable and mysterious and uh, and dare I say sexy, mm -hmm. and therefore there's an attraction there. It's it's something that it becomes important to that generation and those kinds of horror films and therefore it has to it has a legacy that stands the test of time and do you know what was the 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 effect that it had uh, upon its release i do know that there was fainting but there mm. were women who and i i often wonder when i read about people fainting in films is it more to do with it's so transgressive there's a joy in that like a rapturous fainting mm. in the sense of too much desire rather than necessarily any kind of terror so i always think that lugosi was lugosi was a pinup of his day um and very distinctive very attractive looking man so i wonder if there was this idea of not only is he foreign wealthy certainly new to these shores but also there's something very, very sexy about the fact that there's a new type of suave, aristocratic, immortal man uh, on the scene. There's something mm. very, very enticing about that. This is why vampires endure in ways that other monsters just do not enjoy the same level of legacy. But even Frankenstein has never enjoyed the full um, adaptability or the gamut that, that vampires have, in particular Dracula. Mm. I love the 
I love having now this vision in my head of women fainting going to see Dracula <laughs> in the 1930s because Bella Lugosi was just too hot for the screen. <laughs> <laughs> too smoldering for the screen. But you have to admit, most of us fell in love with a vampire when we were young enough. Without being able to articulate it, perhaps, but it was there. I mean, I wa- I rewatched this film for the nth time last night and I still giggled when he did the I don't drink vine line. Yes. <laughs> the power <laughs> remains, even now. It really does. It really does. Do you think kind of you you brought up the the kind of the Muppet version of Dracula and these iconic um, visual elements that make up that created the blueprint for what we imagined the vampire and specifically Dracula would look like on screen with Bela Lugosi's performance and his take on it. Do you think with with that being so recognizable, but maybe even by people who may have not seen the original film? Do you think there's an element of that that vision of the elegant foreign Count Dracula that has been sort of cheapened by it being so replicated? I mean, I should have supposed to give the caveat that he's not necessarily the first vampire that's an aristocrat. That would go back much earlier to, to uh, John Polidori's, oh, yeah. um, you know, uh, Lord Ruffin. Mm-hmm. So we have that kind of prototype in the ether, in the literature. By the time we get to the, the film versions, I think that... The Count in sort of elegant dress, that very much was a product of a staging decision in Broadway, on Broadway. So, you know, that's absolutely fine. The cape, the, the, the tuxedo. And I suppose when we see that in later adaptations or reimaginings, unless it's handled well, it just looks like a parody. Mm. It has to be handled well. I mean, of the, you know, in the 30s, that wouldn't have looked, that would not have looked as, um, uh, wouldn't have looked completely out of place. Whereas I think when you look at the Coppola version, which you get to later in 92, mm-hmm. what you find is that, you know, the Count, Oldman's Count is, is again dressed in elegant clothes, especially when he's in the London sequence. Mm. And he is very much, he is very much a style that incorporates what is imagined to look like the clothing of that period. So you can see it from a 90s imagination, what this would look like. It doesn't look as staid or as perhaps um, prescribed as the 30s version, mm. where the tuxedo is, um, is, is is far more commonplace in sort of our um, the excesses of culture or the excesses of societal life. In the 90s, it's lo- it looks like it is looking back on what we imagine those clothes look like and how to fuse the Count's own elegance with a more traditional dress of the nineteen of the 1890s. What I'm trying to say is, is that the 1930s version doesn't necessarily look as out of place, but when you try and replicate it, if you're not careful, it looks mm-hmm. like parody. Before we move on to the next, itera- the next kind of big, famous iteration of Dracula, do you think the 1931 version stands up today? Do you think it's a horror film that fans or people who are interested in vampires and Dracula or in horror should visit? Yes, I think it's a must watch. I think it's more important now, perhaps, as a testament to the power of cinema, the importance of the universal monster mo- movement, mm. um, the fact that Dracula has a very interesting, adaptable legacy throughout cinema and therefore it's very important for that reason it's kind of important to know the fountainhead of of it in the kind of american imagination but um in terms of horror no i don't think it's necessarily anything to be afraid of i do think that it's very gentle in many ways Mm. it's strange it's got some great moments in it that are very odd but um 
I think that it's something that for the sake of completism and certainly for the sake of knowing where these ideas have originated from and that they are always being recycled in later versions, one way or the other, there is a recycling of these images, then I think, I think it's important for that reason to kind of know where it comes from. So let's move on now to the horror of Dracula from 1958. This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. try and understand. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. So I, I call this film The Horror of Dracula, <laughs> even though it was just titled Dracula, because otherwise we're, we're just going to have three films during the course of this episode called Dracula. It's going to get real confusing really quickly. Sure. <laughs> but this is the, the Hammer Horror version of the novel. And it's directed by Terence Fisher and starring Sir Christopher Lee as the Count. This version changes quite a few things from the original novel, doesn't it? Absolutely. And um, as was Hammer's own won't I suppose what they did was they often boiled down a lot of the characters they got rid of any of the surplus um, what they deemed to be superfluous characters the excess they change a lot of the design I think a lot of these 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 choices were made by budget constraint yeah but they also changed their Dracula and their of course their Van Helsing they're very different um, versions of them when you think mm. of it and compare them side by side they're very 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 different very um much more modernized, much less uh, contained, I would argue. So what do you think of Lee's take on Count Dracula? I think he's brilliant. I think he's so exciting. He's definitely more terrifying. Mm. And it's a different form of terror. It's a real terror of the body in the sense that you think everything about all the stillness that Lugosi accomplishes in Browning's film is completely destroyed when we get to Lee's film. Because Lee's portrayal is so physical it's so domineering he uses his height extraordinarily yes. well in the film you always feel he's he's gonna he's imposing upon you he's he's on top of you and on top of that it's that it's that ability to move really really um really suggestively and what i mean by that is for instance when he's descending the stairs mm. he looks like he's floating Yes. And it's just a brilliant movement on, on Lee's part and obviously the use of, 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 of the cape and costume. But he's abrupt. He's frightening. He has you on the back foot from the moment you meet him. And I think that that makes you go, oh, oh, I, this isn't the elegant encounter I was expecting. This is much more um, ferocious and, uh, and, and, and as I say, unpredictable. And I think there's something quite brilliant about that in, in, in this film. I think it works very, very well. It contains Lee's energy, but at the same time, it um, 
it always puts you on a set of being quite unsettled by him, I think. There's something really menacing about him from the mm -hmm. very first moment, because you're right, it does seem like he... Christopher Lee was very, very big man. He was six foot five. Mm -hmm. and, but he moves so quietly like a cat. But then you know that at any given moment he can pounce and absolutely annihilate you. There's a much more, there's a much bigger threat of physical violence from him, I think, than there ever, it were, than there ever was from Lugosi's take on the character. Absolutely. I mean, think of when he's tossing the bride around mm. the room. That was absolutely unexpected. Uh, it shows you that there is a there's a genuine sense of threat and menace, as you said. And I think that he's using your he's using the audiences or playing upon their expectations of you think you're going to get this quiet intrusion of a performance, but instead you're actually getting this very physical, very frightening, unpredictable, and domineering sense of uh, performance. That isn't to say that he is not elegant in his choices as an actor and I think he's actually fantastic because he reads so so well mm. he reads those expectations and of course turns them on their head and I think pairing him up with someone like Peter Cushing mm -hmm. you absolutely have to give as much um, of a performance you have to make it as large as you can because Cushing does that too so the two of them in a way are the perfect pairing because there's so much frenetic energy and uh and, and, and so much uh, at play between the two of them at all times. They really are a wonderful match for each other on the screen. No one gets to dominate the other for very long. Totally. And there is also an element that I found really... Well, I I want to come back to this a lot later on in our conversation, but I found it interesting mm -hmm. to know that Lee didn't watch any other screen adaptations or performances of the role until well into making several of the, the Dracula films that he did for Hammer. And he just took... He wanted to create his own interpretation based on the book. So I wanted to ask you, you know, what elements do you think that he that he takes from the novel and the original text that he brings in that we hadn't seen before in previous adaptations of the of the story? I think that what I mean, I, I appreciate Lee's Puritanism in that sense, I suppose. I mean, he was um, I was I was in Trinity College Dublin when I I did my PhD there and, and, and when I was uh, there following that in my postdoctoral years, mm -hmm. Lee was awarded the Medal of, of, uh, of Dracula, the Bram Stoker Medal. Mm -hmm. And he came to the university to talk about this. And he was very reverential about the text and very um, considered about the text. So I always thought, well, this is someone who's treated it as a piece of scholarship. And I think that that's, that's really important, mm -hmm. to, especially to someone like me, because I treat these, these texts as quite, quite, valuable and important so what he pulls from dracula i think is this idea that dracula is physical and not just physical in terms of being embodied but he can be everywhere so he can transform himself he can influence people he can seduce but at the same time he is terrifying and what he does is he manages to capture this through small gestures and the way he looks at women or indeed the way he you know gets you on the back foot with a particular way of delivering a line but also he he knows that he's embodying this huge character and culture even by the 50s and therefore he has to rise to the occasion by making himself big or making himself stated in a particular way that you know he has the authority to say the line just as much as the ghost he did i am dracula mm -hmm. but the way the two of them deliver it is really telling in the difference of their performance where the ghost he draws it out 
draws it out for effect, but also draws it out, emphasizes the language, emphasizes mm-hmm. the accent. You know, when you when you listen to the way Lee says it, mm-hmm. he confirms it as though it's a business transaction. Yes, I am Dracula. And you're like, OK, that's really interesting because there's no standing on occasion. Mm-hmm. So I already don't know what this guy is like. He's much more unpredictable than the Lugosi one, which is much more emphasizing the grandeur. Lee's one emphasizes the transactional nature of it all. And I think that's really interesting as an update. And what do you think about the way that you mentioned it kind of a little bit before the way he looks at women, the way that he physically handles mm-hmm. the brides of Dracula and kind of other and the other female characters in the film. What do you make of that element of of this adaptation? It is it is a bit brutal in parts. Yeah. Um, it's definitely uh, uncomfortable viewing in the sense that they are commodities. And I think that's what I was trying to get about the transactional nature. He mm. he, he treats all, all people as commodities to serve his greater goal. So as a result, the women become, uh, you know, they are as disposable as pets in the sense that they are there to be discarded. They're there to be tossed aside. They are in the way of glory or they're obscuring the path to glory. Mm. So I think that as a result, he is always... Um, treating them as essential elements in the story but never necessarily the end in itself it, it never feels like a love story it's very very much like uh as i say treating them as commodities so i think that 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 shows you it's really the film is really interested in getting him to face off with um van helsing because it's really about male on male power it's not about female influence really at the end of the day yeah, and I was about to ask you, kind of, do you think that his transactional approach to women is actually his transactional approach to all human beings, aside from Van Helsing, really? Yes, or yes, I would think so. As a- <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would think so. <laughs> He's very singular in his image and his outlook. He's very singular. Yeah, it doesn't, uh, although there, you know, I've read interviews with Sir Christopher Lee where he talked kind of about imbuing his take on Dracula with kind of an eroticism, but it doesn't quite feel erotic it feels much more violent and and like you say just not to keep you overusing that word but it does feel extremely transactional like yeah. these are just bodies i don't think he even though there's no i would hesitate maybe to to read to give it a queer reading in in this take but i don't see him as really wanting women as much as just wanting bodies that he needs for sustenance Yes, and I think that the way to do that with the least minimal amount of fuss is the idea of the temporary seduction. Mm-hmm. It causes less disturbance, less likely to be found or caught out. I think that there is a coldness to his performance, a mm. calculated coldness that when that some people find erotic because they associate it with power. Yeah. And that's fine. That's the way some people might choose to read it. And you go, okay. But there is no emotional depth you can't i don't i think it's harder to fall in love with christopher lee's version of dracula than it is to fall in love with gary oldman's version of dracula yes or frank langella's version of dracula so there's varying states of do you recognize him for his awe or his fantastical ability or wonder that mm. you see with Lugosi, the physical rawness of the power you see with christopher lee or the smoldering um 
hypersexualized version of it that you get later on with uh, Langella. So I think this is what I'm talking about the the, mm. the adaptation or the um the the immutability of vampires. They they have they take on different traits according to mm. the audience's tastes and desires. And I think in the fifties, this would have been a lot more frightening mm. to watch an unpredictable patriarchal dominate domineering very cold but certainly um masculine and the full capital m word of it encompassing dracula rather than someone that would be considered more foreign or a feat or um standing on ceremony as lagosi does or later ones which are much more sexually provocative Extremely alpha male vibes from Lee's performance here. But yes. um, I wanted to get in actually into the one relationship that he does seem to care about and mm. does want to fuss over as opposed to everyone else. And that's kind of his his continuous antagonism with Van Helsing. What do you make of the way that this film pits them against one another? I th I've always read it as a form of the old world versus the new, the kind of the proper version or the proper civilized kind of imagery of what it is like to be a man in control of his station and power and class. I've always read it that way with the way that Cushing portrays Van Helsing. Sensible, absolutely. Um, but increasingly deranged in order to control this folkloric intrusion into the rational world. So as as Lee's performance becomes larger and becomes more um, terrifying as he's trying to you know, vanquish um, uh, Van Helsing, I think that equally so Van Helsing is his rationality and his um, propriety is pushed to the absolute limit. So it does feel a little bit like it's um, forgive me for saying it like this, but you know that sort of English propriety put to 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 its absolute maximum test mm -hmm. by this someone by this this character who, you know, in terms of his characterization at least, does not represent that. I think that you know Dracula is still an intrusion into that rational rational sensibility. So I've always felt that their their heightened sense of you know. Um, uh, play as they get to this sort of you know, this, this final battle at the end I've always felt that that was always about uh, giving it its all it always feels like the two of them are really in the fight till the end there's no um, there's no backing off there's no trickery it's just physical demand of trying to control each other mm. and I think that's quite what makes it quite exciting yeah and there is also a, a much scary I mean we, we sort of circled around this before but We've mentioned a lot about kind of eroticism and kind of the vampire being a romantic lead. I love your your linking it to the idea of a time traveler almost because of how mm. it's shifted. But this version of Dracula is also bloody. Like he, yeah, he's covered in blood. He's got remnants of you know feeding on his face, on his fangs, on his hands. His eyes become bloodshot. It's very gruesome. Um, so what do you think of kind of this injection of of actual physical violence of reminding ourselves very visually that Dracula is after all a, a monster I think it's it, it comes from two different places the first is again going back to the technology you have the explosion of technicolor mm. and with technicolor you get to show off different really lurid gorgeous colors like the red blood and I think that you know it is a horror film it has been pitched as a horror film it's been certainly designed and marketed as a horror film so you have to have the payoff and I think rather than making it look really neat and tidy the drinking of blood or something that's hidden away due to censorship or whatever 
I think that by the 50s, you're like, no, I really want to see that there's actually a cost here, that there's actually some sort of violence that matters. And this is something that, you know, Hammer does with a plum. Let's, let's not beat around the bush. I think the other thing that you have as well, though, well, alongside this kind of technicolor joy, is you have the physicality that comes into cinema and the destruction of bodies and the horrors. And that's pretty much coming out of the destruction of World War II. So when you have people coming back who are injured, maimed, the body horror, essentially, the, the violence that people have witnessed and seen and the trauma which, under which they've gone, when you're going back to those safer, I say safer in universal commas, but you know, when you're going back to these safer fantasies, they can't remain completely divorced from the horrors of reality because then they, they, they cease to work. So you have to include some sort of violence that has been bleeding across the cultural experience. So by making it much more visceral or more visceral certainly at that time than it had been before, I think what you're doing is you're seeing that actually the world has changed and that people have gone undergone a trauma and that it has to update itself to serve the audience that are going to view it. So it is a horror film, it shows off the technology, but it still very much brings about this um, sense of violence and corporeality. The horror is that the body can be drained of blood, that there are actually these really, um, I think for the time, quite spectacular moments of violence um, to show that there is something at stake here. There's something that matters at the core of this this fantastical battle between the two. I just keep on thinking of his lurid bloodshot red eyes, which are just, I mean, if you imagine that, you know, in Technicolor, 1958, that must have just looked so terrifying. That must have been an incredible scene to, to watch yeah. in a cinema at that time. I had heard a story from my late father who said that he had heard the story so god only knows how true it is but i don't <laughs> mind because I, I think the best stories are always told third or fourth mm -hmm. hand where he used to go to see the, the films were the films were screened in the barbican and that lee used to sit at the back and there'd be a couple in front of him watching the films and he used to lead forward and ask them for a light for a cigarette and when they'd light the lighter they'd see it was him and freak out <laughs> and i i don't know for a minute if it's true but i love the image of that in my mind that's just um it fits perfectly because then it shows oh my god he's real he's in the cinema with us there's something quite amazing about that yeah. i love that oh no oh, i i'm gonna choose to believe that is true yeah, I love the idea of that. I yeah. have to say. I mean, I've I've never met Sir Christopher Lee, although in my first job in London, I did once pick up the phone and it was him and wow. I just that voice just oh, yeah. that voice just saying this is Sir Christopher Lee. I still remember to this day the fact that I was just not trembling, but absolutely stuck and moving at my desk and yeah. forgot how to use a phone or how to speak at the, in that split second that he was talking. It's wonderful. I mean, it's it's strange. I, when I saw him in Trinity, you know, what struck me was I knew he was tall, hmm. but I, I, it was very imposing. He was physically a very powerful man in the sense that you look at him, and even by then he was, it was long after um, he had done then Lord of the Rings, long after that. He still looked very imposing and tall and commanding. He had a tone in his voice that instantly commanded your attention and instantly commanded respect. And at the same time, wasn't necessarily severe. It was very seductive as well. It reeled you in. 
and I thought, yeah, that's 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 the voice of someone who definitely can play, or who has played Dracula, because it's all about that authority, but the seduction of the story as well. Let's move on now to the last Dracula adaptation <laughs> that we're going to be discussing. I'm going to call it an erotic horror adaptation. He has walked through centuries, untouched by time. He has seen empires rise and fall. He possesses the wisdom of the ages. Throughout eternity, no man has ever provoked such terrible fear and such haunting desire. Dracula, starring Frank Langella, with Laurence Olivier. I am the last of my kind, descended from a conquering race, but I must warn you to take good care. If at any time my company does not please you, you will have only yourself to blame. So this final take that we're going to be discussing in this episode is directed by John Badham and stars Franklin Langella in the titular role. But it is arguably the least known version of Dracula out of the three that we have discussed today. Why do you think that is? I think by the time this came out, so it came out in 1979, there was already three Draculas out that year. Yeah. And I think under the weight of these other versions that had come out, and of course, um, Stan Dragotti's comedy Love at First Bite as well, which had come out <laughs> as this yeah. wonderful parody, absolutely brilliant parody of 70s New York and Dracula having to fit into 70s New York and goes to Studio 54, stuff like that. Brilliant. You have this exhaustion that comes into the culture. Think of the other film that comes out in 79 as well, of course, is Nosferatu the Vampire. Yep. And I think that when you look at how meditative and beautiful Herzog's film is, and then you compare it to Universal's 79 film, which serves a different palette altogether, I just think people felt just a bit drained by it at the time because the 70s was such an incredible decade for vampires more generally and even in Dracula adaptations specifically mm. you get so many different types and then you get all these sort of subgenre offshoots you know you get Blackula you have um you know Scream Blackula Scream you have uh, earlier again you have Count Yorga who's basically a slightly stranger version uh, of Dracula in California. So you have these really interesting other types of vampires who are really, really great on their own terms. And I, I really love them for it. There's not a bad one amongst them. But then by the time you get to 79 and the Universal have finally decided they're going to make a luscious remake of this Dracula, you have to think to yourself, what are they trying to do that's different? Because they're still working on the same, you know, title property that they've had since 1931 hmm. they do do some interesting things with it though they don't even go completely fallow or anything but i think that it was a film that was in some ways compromised and in other ways was made to service an audience that by that time had already gotten their kicks elsewhere hmm. so you know i think there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack on this film I think to be perfectly honest <laughs> but what I like about it is that there is this weird little service to tradition as well which is that Langella at the time when he was cast he was playing Dracula on Broadway so we have that direct le legacy back to Lugosi as well which I think is is wonderful and I do know 
firsthand a colleague of mine who used to teach in Trinity she saw Langella on stage as Dracula Mm -hmm. and she said the poor guy when he was coming out to take his bows at the end of the night he was getting knocked over by people not only throwing underwear not only throwing bras (laughs) but throwing house keys at him just losing their shit completely with him because to be honest you take one look at him and you go course i'm running away with you sod the harker lot sod sewards i'm out of her i'm running away with dracula and why wouldn't you it's franklin jenna listen you know? i i have to admit <laughs> i have to admit i had not seen this film until today i was always curious i knew of its existence and there's no way to intellectualize this i mean there are ways but i'm not even going to attempt to i absolutely lost my shit at this version of the dracula story <laughs> I I have only seen Frank Langella as an older, mm. established, well-respected actor, a, a gentleman of the screen. I was not ready for this version of Frank Langella. It's quite a... It's quite a... I mean, imagine if you saw that when you were about maybe, I don't know, 12 or 13. That would I, be some sexual awakening, you know? Um, I would have 100% got a, a restraining order against <laughs> me by Frank Langella if I had seen him on stage. I mean, the thing I love about Langella is he knows he's hot. Okay, I've read Langella's biography. He knows he's a good-looking guy. <laughs> I mean, Langella's, by the way, I mean, you should read his... his, his I will. Um, his, his, his biography is incredible in terms of Hollywood history. It's called mm. drop drop names, and I mean he has, you know, had a relationships with Rita Hayworth. He has had relationships with innumerable stars, and you know, been married and had extramarital affairs. I mean, the guy has just loved Hollywood, and it in turn has loved him, quite physically and quite literally. What I think was quite interesting about it, though, is that in playing Dracula, he knew full well he was going to play the sort of master seductor, and Badham knew this. Badham cultivated around this i mean he's surrounded by great other other great actors with donald pleasant mm-hmm. certainly brings everything he's got to the role equally to Laurence olivier obviously in his older years and i don't necessarily think the best use of olivier still tries his best and it's in, in and in so doing i think is surrounded by other incredible actresses like kate nanigan so i think i think we have this incredible energy of um talent and the mm. film uses interesting ways of reversing, you know, it reverses colorization at points. Mm-hmm. So it makes daylight look like night shots. And that gives it an eerie sensibility. It has what can only be described as, I mean, even though he's got quite a huge haircut, by 70 standards, it's very, very tidy. <laughs> by by contemporary standards, you kind of go, seriously, you've got a bouffant, dude. But, you know... <laughs> He really sells it as something like an, a forbidden sexual experience. And, you know, that's what makes it work. That's yes. Because it's treated seriously. It is. They really lean in into the erotic in mm. this take on the story. I mean, it's it's the tagline of the film was a love story. It's very much presenting this take on Dracula as a romantic hero. Yeah. And I emphasize the romantic. Like, he is a sed- he is a seductive. Even from the first moment we meet him, when he comes into the room, mm-hmm. he just zeroes in on the women and instantly captivates them with just one look. And there's a difference, I think, between all of the other Draculas that we have discussed is the fact that his attention is so intense and it translates so well onto the screen and with Langella's performance. And when he sees a woman, he zeroes in and mm. 
the direction or the the choice of framing as well kind of comes into this when there's nothing else that exists and even comedic i think it's quite comical when in that first scene when dracula's first comes in into this um soiree he someone has to pull away someone it's essentially has to pull away his attention from the woman he's talking to because nothing else matters until he sees someone else Mm, that's right no he's uh, and and i think as well that you know that moment when he's talking to uh i think it's lucy and she um she grows faint with the Mm. the penetrative stare essentially you're kind of like well yeah i mean he is that overwhelming a presence he really holds he holds his own with everyone he's cast alongside Mm -hmm. but equally when he's looking at them the camera the cinematography really reinforces that you feel like it's like he's staring through you Yes. when you're looking at him and i think that's something it's kind of like the way we describe love isn't it you know mm. that, that they, they knew me you know what i mean they they understood me or they, they saw through me and they mm. saw into me and i think that that's something that the film does very well in terms of that seduction or being able to be uh, unnerved by it of course there's another big factor as well is that you know he's got these huge brown eyes mm. that just melt you when you look at him they absolutely melt you. I never realized how how powerful that was and mm. until I'd seen this version because other versions of Dracula tend to focus the sexuality on, you know, whether it's the mouth or the orality of it or indeed the costume or whatever or, or the way that they, they physically hold themselves. He's all about essentially staring at these women and mm. in doing so he's very much going back to Lugosi on one level but it's also updating Lugosi it's not staring to the point of being creepy it's staring to kind of get you to bury your soul mm. so it's something very erotic what do you think of the way that this Dracula updates those those markers that I think kind of harken back a lot more to Lugosi than they do to Lee you know mm. the cape the suaveness the high society elements the um the politeness almost to 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 a comical effect i think considering that this is you know a late 70s film yeah it has it combines that sort of clippedness that you get from 1930s dialogue has a bit of that at moments when Mm. they're kind of sparring between the because because what it does in the film which i think is a really interesting way of adapting it is they boil it down like hammer did Mm -hmm. and boil it down to a sense that you have we're now living in the Seward madhouse in this film. We're literally in it all the time. So the fact that, you know, there's no escape anymore. These families are ingrown. Harker is not necessarily a great choice for uh, Lucy rather than Mina because mm-hmm. they do switch around, which is yeah. also something that, Har- that that Hammer did as well. So now we find that, you know, actually, these women don't have great choices in front of them. And the fact that it is it is set around the idea of suffrage, women's suffrage, mm-hmm. I think, again, links back to this idea of here's this guy who comes along, very sexy, very attractive, foreigner, but sounds more, more American than English. <laughs> uh, but that's OK. And he offers me a choice. And the choice is not necessarily that I'm free from patriarchy, but the choice is that I have a choice mm. as opposed to this sort of predestined, scolded way that the women are treated by Dr. Seward and even by Harker to a degree. So we find that, you know, actually he is the liberated choice. He is the seventies 
women's liberation choice. You want to have the sexy guy with whom you may or may not, it may or may not work out, but that's not the point. The point is you want to have the, the runaway experience with him. Mm. And that is what I think the film is really tapping into is that 70s sexual desire and freedom that women begin to have those conversations around their own uh, understanding of their own sexual drive and desire. That sounds really late, I appreciate, but actually it is true if you look back on the sort of period, you know, in which women are beginning to have those conversations that would have been seen as incredibly impolite and incredibly improper um, only decades earlier. So now it's not about keeping it under wraps or under, under the lid. It's actually now saying you can have these desires and I will not only realise them, but I'll help you fulfil them in a way that goes absolutely counter to anything else that's going on in the culture. I think that's really exciting. So Langella really uses that magnetism in order to, to sell that to the audience and of course mm. to uh, to the characters. So um, it's not as, it's a different form of danger than you get with Lugosi. Lugosi is a danger because he's an outsider, because mm. he's an unknowable thing, because he's not part of the, the culture. He's always going to be untamable. Lee is a very different form of danger because he's he's something that's unstoppable even by patriarchy. Patriarchy can't get him or, or barely controls him. But Langella's one is the one that seduces from within. I'll give you what you want and you'll betray them yourself. And that's that's game, set and match, you know, in terms of now we have a Dracula that actually fully understands the true nature of his power. If you get the women on side, then there's no way that they'll ever go back to these outgrown stale male mm -hmm. controlled spaces and there's a lot more attention placed in this version on the female characters even though they're sort of switched around weirdly but and and kind of their devotion their choice to be devoted to dracula both before and after they're actually bitten mm -hmm. um so what do you think about you know sort of describe this alluring seduction that he this this long form seduction that he does with them but what do you think this dracula's take is on its female characters i think it genuinely is trying to situate them within the discourse of second wave feminism honestly reading it mm. like that because mm -hmm. they are talking about um it opens with them talking about mina and lucy talking about how they're not chattel they're you know they have a right to vote they have a right to their own opinions mm -hmm. that it shouldn't just be men who have the vote that kind of thing that's a very very hyper political statement coming out of a universal horror film at that time so it is very much showing that awareness demonstrating that awareness but these women they have their own desire and what i love about this film is that lucy while she's scolded and mm -hmm. told that she, and treated like a child in ways that i find rather infuriating watching it what's great about it is that she gets to have the choice her her desires and her choices matter more than anything around the sort of male benefactors around her she gets to basically tell jonathan nope you know i know what i'm doing here you don't know anything she you know, van helsing's revealed to be incredibly weak and compromised and as same with her with, with dr seward her father so what you find is is that she's actually the only one who's able to able to enable dracula to survive depending on how you read the ending anna because i know a lot mm. of people have this two readings of that there's two readings of that ending and i have a very i think sunny outlook on it which is that he survives and she enables that survival 
-hmm. that survival might not necessarily mean that he's going to completely make it back to Romania, but he survives the encounter to live again. Whereas other people have read it quite differently. So, I mean, I've also read it like that. And actually, I was quite surprised uh, by the ending because it's essentially a hopeful ending for the monster of the film. And I find it very interesting that it kind of, even though Dracula is the, the monster, it is, he is much more than in any of the other versions, quite a sympathetic, romantic, almost cursed hero. Mm. He's obviously menacing and manipulative and he is a, an undead being, but he, sedu- I, maybe this is the Langella effect, maybe it's those big brown <laughs> eyes, but <laughs> he does seduce us into being on his side. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, as I say, like initially you kind of think, oh, okay, he's attractive, but he's a bit strange or he's a bit creepy. And when you see Mina's been transformed, you you can't, mm-hmm. you kind of, when we come across her, we're like, oh, well, that's a bit grisly. But in comparison with, as I say, that ingrown Hammer family that she is surrounded by, mm-hmm. he is so the better choice. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really the film is in love with him from the outset. This mm-hmm. is a really striking moment when they eventually consummate their relationship and the whole screen glows red. And I mean, glows red. It's such a striking moment because in a film that is looks largely or certainly um early versions of it look quite desaturated Mm -hmm. it looked really bled out of color as though it tried to look like a black and white film but not really and i know that when they were making it bad and wanted to make it in black and white and universal told in no way Mm. um the fact that then we have this gorgeous glowing siren red shot where the two of them are essentially kissing and then it goes into this really interesting tilt what you find is is that you're like this is really sexy without having to show a lot of flesh this is really really erotic without having to titillate in any kind of uh you know 70s pornographic way this is very much about getting a sense of the sensuality behind it and that's what works really really well for this I mean, I was about to ask you about that scene. So thank you mm. for bringing it up. And obviously, you know, I am going to drag it into into the gutter because that is 100% a sex scene. And, oh, yeah, <laughs> and for sure. That is how it's bookended yes. by Langella flying in through the window with his shirt open, which is the oh, first yeah. time he has a shirt open with the cape still on. Mm-hmm. And sort of flying in through the window and basically declaring that he's going to take uh, Lucy and they kiss. But there's this also quite an, a, not a sweet, but there's an element of him kind of him making sure that there is consent. Like it's extremely consensual. It's not violent. Like she's been no, waiting for him. She's sitting there going, oh, my God, he's finally here. This is great. You know, and as of the audience kind of going, come on, let's get together. I think it's very, yeah, it's very, it, it's nothing like the earlier Dracula's where you feel if you were thinking about something like mm-hmm. consent or whatever else. And I mean, vampires and consent, regrettably, for one reason or another, is a very recent thing. But you mm-hmm. do see that in the 70s. There is more of this idea of, do you desire what I offer you? And I think in this, you really do see that. Whereas in the earlier ones, women were still transactional victims one way or the other, or hypnotized or abandoned. Whereas with the 70s, it's actually about, if you want it, you can have it. 
Yes. And I found this scene in particular. I mean, obviously, it's it's this blast of color. I've just watched it this morning and I screenshotted the hell out of it because I was mm. like, this is striking. It's just blood red and these two, their silhouettes floating essentially in blood space. Mm-hmm. And then there's the a bat flying towards the camera, which mm-hmm. is a sweet little harkening back as well to the... <laughs> to it's it's the sexing, but it's also melding of them. And mm. it's the two of them. It's not Dracula just sucking the blood out of this woman. It's the two of them intertwined, which absolutely, absolutely elevates the romance of this take on Dracula. Mm. And the fact even that he refers to Lucy as my queen later on. Like yes. she's not one of the couple of brides of Dracula that he has essentially as his minions that are completely mm. under his control. There is an element of, you know, oh, this is a romantic gothic drama as opposed to she's just another girl I'm just going to transform and, and then put her in a coffin and forget about her and go into the next one and you know i guess that's the flowery nature of this adaptation but it did take me by surprise because it's extremely erotic and there's a lot of emphasis i think placed on how she's feeling and Mm -hmm. how she's experiencing this moment and there's a previous scene where they're where they have their first kiss and they spend so long on that Mm -hmm. It almost it almost reminded me of a this is a very strange comparison because I know that in that film they weren't allowed to show uh, a kiss that was longer than X amount of seconds. But in Notorious Mm -hmm. and they just spent a very, very long time on a on a dialogue scene between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. And I think it's Ingrid Bergman. And they were just talking with their mouths really close to one another. And it's Mm -hmm. just, you just get like four minutes of them essentially talking into each other's mouths. And it's so sexy. (laughs) It's always about that idea of the unrealized, isn't it? You know, I mean, it reminds me actually, funnily enough, again, keeping it in vampires, but in a different kind of way. When you look at Neil Jordan's um, Into the Vampire, you have this great moment towards the end where you have Louis and Normand Mm -hmm. having this exchange, which always in that whole scene, no matter how many times I watch it, but because of the proxemics of it, it looks like they're going to kiss. Of course, they're going to kiss. They're going to kiss. They are millimeters from each other's mouths. And then it breaks away. So you're like, oh, it's about that that rubbing up against that free sun with the Mm. forbidden. And that forbidden could be anything. It could be something much more conservative in the 70s or indeed the idea of capturing a uh, a, a gay kiss in the 1990s but mm-hmm. um, in a Hollywood production. But what I think is really interesting about it in the, in the case of uh, the Langella Dracula is that that red, of course, symbolizes immediately, symbolizes, yes, blood and everything, but it's also passion. Yes. And this is it. There's passion here. It's not red as danger. It's red as passion enveloping Mm. sexual desire this is really powerful stuff and i know for all of people watching it going oh god 70s haircuts the 70s lapels all the rest of it i i I dare you not to feel a little bit turned on by the end of it because it is really vivid and really uh, earnest you know you really feel that they're selling it to you and 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 i think that as i say if you encounter that at exactly the right age that would be quite a profound effect Mm. i think it would have on you I mean, not going to lie, at any age. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're still in the afterglow, I think. You're in the afterglow. (laughs) I've seen this many, many, many times. So I'm like, yeah, 
That's what I'm, that's I'm in the Langella afterglow where I just texted all of my friends being like, you cannot believe what I have just seen. It is the cure for everything. This has cured my entire life. I have no more problems anymore. Well, I'll tell you this now. And I know we talked about, we talked about it before, but um, when Langella was invited to Dublin in 2018 mm-hmm. for a uh, film festival and uh, I was... I flew into Dublin a day early because he was going to be there and I managed to anyway get to this Q&A session and he was talking about his life and his career and his his uh, book at the time and I have to tell you after having a very brief question and conversation with him I mean the man is at least I'd say 82 83 at that point but both my mother and I just thought he is so seductive he still has it it's he still has those beautiful big brown eyes but it's his voice it's a bit like Lee, Christopher Lee as well. That voice is disarmingly charming. It's quite something. This he is, is still got it. I, I really hope I never meet him after watching this film. <laughs> <laughs> this whole series is just going to be <laughs> just a whole bunch of thirsting after vampires. That's all Pretty it's going to be. I think so. I think that's going to be brilliant. It'll, be, it'll knock it out of the park. How do we not love them? And to to start wrapping up our conversation and to bring Mm. all of these three films together, um, what do you think kind of the evolution of Dracula as as a cinematic monster, but also as a romantic hero has been? I think when you're thinking about the the going from the official Dracula, I suppose, of 1931 and how he's established himself as the character of Dracula as this outsider, but elegant uh, supernaturally inflected, uh, capable of strange and wonderful things, and yet at the same time, he's still having to deal with these pesky humans. I think that you see this evolutionary shift through the 50s, and you gain the physicality. Through the 70s, you gain the political sensitivity. The desire to be reunited with the long lost wife really comes to the fore mm. in the 70s, although it has outlying influencers as well. By the 80s, Dracula goes into a complete um, coma. There is no Dracula films in the 80s Mm -hmm. at all because it basically transfers to the youth. I mean, there are Dracula pops up in other films, but it's not his film. Um, And then we find by the time we get to the 90s, it's romanticized entirely. Coppola's Dracula is a love letter to all Draculas in the 20th century, pretty Mm -hmm. much, as well as the screen technologies that inform Dracula's evolution. So when we get to more recent ones then, like Dracula Untold, Dracula 2000, Dracula Untold, and Dracula, um, the BBC version this year, we're seeing a play on origins and a rewriting around the story. And that's quite common. Over any other character, I think, in Gothic literature, Dracula has been not only adapted and written, but rewritten in numerous ways. So he's always being shifted and changed and put into new scenarios whereby he has to grapple with the contemporary world. The good thing about the Dracula adaptation that came out this year was that they recognised the fact that it was very, very crowded with male characters who did all the action. The women were sort of either used or discarded in the original novel, serving a particular purpose, but never necessarily finishing it out. and I think that they're trying to change that by shifting it to minor characters that were always written out of Dracula. I'm thinking of uh, Sister Agnes, for instance. So you have these interesting adaptations that change. But the Dracula himself, Dracula in the BBC version, I think he was rather unchanging in the sense that he, was, he wasn't he was very sympathetic and he was very much about 
well, I'm just going to stick around and time is on my side. I never really felt the need for him to, um, he never had the depth that I wanted him to have. I think it was more about putting him into different situations. Um, he's up to date, but I didn't necessarily find him to be as compelling to watch on screen. It was more about how they were going to try and transform the postmodern world mm. around him rather than necessarily have him come to the fore. Yeah, he's slick and he's adaptable and changeable, but I never felt that he was... Why, why is he here? That's what I really wanted to get to the crux of, and I don't think I ever got that answer. Mm. Dracula Untold, it's a, got an obvious debt, of course, to Coppola. But I also think that Dracula Untold was also about trying to fill in that narrative gap we talked about earlier. Mm. What would be Dra what made Dracula into the person that he is? Well, actually, it's more scary to think about that he didn't need a reason, that actually he mm. just is. And I know Coppola did that with the opening and ending of his film. Mm. But the idea is we're always trying to give Dracula a story. We're always trying to superimpose a narrative on him. And that brings it up to date for readers and listeners mm -hmm. but at the same time i think there's always we have to think about the second we do that we're trying to humanize a character that unlike a lot of other vampires dracula isn't that human mm. he has a different uh, impulse a different drive a different urge he isn't really that human when he is transformed he becomes something else whereas vampires more traditional humans that are turned into vampires uh ones that are not dracula they tend to have these sympathetic streaks that we can relate to much better, like Louis in Into the Vampire. Um, you know, they we find this, or, or David in The Lost Boys, we find there's something much more emotionally connected with them, I think, than with Dracula. Dracula is still that strange other. So, I don't know. He's changed a lot, but at the same time, he's you know because he's got that name because that name is branded mm. there's very they have to keep in in touch with certain rules certain rules have to be precise throughout whether that is that he's older that he's refined or sophisticated in some way even if it is that he keeps the tuxedo undressed that's fine they don't, haven't kept the widow's peak in all cases thank goodness <laughs> you know so there's 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 ways in which the authority of the name dracula that that tends to stick Mm. one thing I've noticed even in Dracula adaptations that aren't so great like for example Dracula 2000 <laughs> yeah this is not so good but I will say one thing um when it's revealed and I won't say who but when it's revealed who he is yep. in history mm -hmm. at least that's got gravitas to it you can kind of go okay for a film that maybe doesn't sell its ideas very well that is a very good core hook yep and that hook works so there is a gravitas to the name Dracula. You don't throw it around. Mm -hmm. So this is why I'm saying there are vampires and then there are Draculas. So there's a subtleness. There's a subtlety between them, and this and that subtlety makes all the difference of how you recognise generic vampires from Draculas. So you gotta have the gravitas to get the name Dracula. Mm. I think. And do you think that Dracula is inherently an evil character? I think he can be. I don't think he always is. I think it's a point of view. And that's my own prejudice on this because I've always been fascinated by the mm. vampire's point of view. If you're thinking about it in terms of, you know, people being treated as disposable, a desire for power, a tyrannical thirst, a desire for knowledge and to conquer the world. Well, yes, that's, I don't think anyone wants to live in a world or a time where we feel that's very close by. Mm. But when you look at it from the inverse, He's an outsider. 
he's vulnerable and his vulnerabilities are exploited once once they're discovered he very very well may stand in for issues around post-colonialism issues around racism issues around insecurity the modern world catching up with and destroying his folkloric sense of himself and his homeland so there are these interesting ideas that are always in battle so i don't think he's fully evil he is in the novel i think it's much more explicit in the novel mm. but in the adaptations we've come across i think what we discover is that there's a little bit of dracula that we all identify with and that we all have sympathy for and then it's just a question of degrees after that mm. how much of it then we're willing to to be seduced by and what what is it that we what what is it that we admire in him or desire in him so every Dracula is a little bit different and therefore I think that's why certain versions speak to certain people of certain ages over others. I love that. And to wrap up, what is your own personal favourite take on Dracula? I gotta, I gotta go with the classic here. Gotta go with Coppola from 1992. And I think it's because of two reasons. Number mm -hmm. one, I am eternally in love with Gary Oldman. Um, he could read a phone book and I would be there. Um, it's just... <laughs> He's just this something very mesmeric about him as mm -hmm. a character, as an actor. But also, I saw it at exactly the right age. I saw it when I was 12. Mm -hmm. I stayed up late to watch it. It was on, God, I can't remember what channel it was on. But I saw it when I was uh, 12, sorry, 12 or 13, because I'm just thinking when it would have been on TV. Mm -hmm. But what was really exciting about it was that MTV at the time used to run this campaign where mm -hmm. you could win a trip to... Brand Castle in Romania. No, and you didn't. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <gasps> no, I still didn't. remember. I still <laughs> remember the. I mean, I didn't win it. I was twelve. But Aww. my point is, I still remember the advertising campaign mm -hmm. for that that competition, mm -hmm. which wasn't. It was it tied into the movie, because it blew my mind that a this film looked amazing and forbidden and all the rest of it and gory and sexy and oh yeah mm. everything I want to see, but b that there was a place in the world where you could actually go and there was a castle Dracula, I'm there. So <laughs> it blew my mind. I since then, I mean, it had a very profound effect on me because since then I'd watched documentaries where people were, were, you know, scholars of Dracula. There was a, you know, there was an order of Dracula. I was like, holy crap, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So it had a very profound importance on me because it hit at exactly the right moment for my 12 slash 13 year old brain to go, well, that's what I want to be doing. I love so it. kids, you can do this. You can grow up to do and talk about and read and write about exactly what you love. It is entirely possible because I've done it for myself with vampires. So, um, but Coppola's Dracula, that's the one that stays with me. It's the one, no matter how many times students tell mm -hmm. me, oh, it looks old fashioned. That's the one. That's the one that seduces me every time. I love it. Sirka, thank you so much for all of your time and your incredible insight. Where can people find more of your work online? So online, you can, if you uh, ask Santa, he might be very nice to you. He, um, There's a book called Postmodern Vampires, fiction, um, film, fiction and popular culture, which I brought out last year, uh, on vampires and vampire adaptation and popular culture from 1968 to pretty much ending with what we do in the shadows. Mm -hmm. um, you can find that on all good bookshops, um, and online um, sellers. Um, you can also find, I've got numerous articles out there on, on vampires and uh, all sorts of uh, variations thereof. We just have a book as well coming out with the British Library 
co-edited with my colleague uh, Xavier Aldana Reyes, where we look at vampire short fiction. Uh, it's called Visions of the Vampire, and you can get it from the British Library Bookshop. Uh, and again, that's a really nice one if you want to give the gothic uh, person in your life something nice for their stocking. So um, yes, that's available there as well. It looks gorgeous. I've already put it on my on my wish list. It's very pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. The British Library did a beautiful job. So yeah thank you so much thank you that's it for this episode of the final girls podcast you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher or wherever you get your shows if you can please do take the time to leave us a review on apple Podcasts. it really does help a lot you can find out more about what we do on the final girls.co.uk subscribe to bloody women which we send out every week with newly commissioned writing and follow us on twitter instagram and facebook at the final girls uk you can also follow Circa on Twitter at Vampire Circa, that's spelled S-O-R-C-H-A. And I am at Anna B. Demented. Thank you for listening. And next week, Pamela Hutchinson will be joining me to discuss the bootleg Dracula, Nosferatu, and Werner Herzog's remake of the film from 1979.